Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. And today we'll be talking to Suk Tan Yang, author of Buddhist Feminism, published in 2020 by Paul Grave Macmillan. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Suk Tan. You're welcome. Uh, so your book takes up several different themes and interweaves them together. So you take up the topic of anger, how uh, Western feminists in general and, and black feminists in particular and, and other feminists make use of Buddhism as a means to grapple with anger, both sort of philosophically and practically, you're looking at the relationship between the metaphysics of the self, feminist anti-essentialist thought, and you're also looking at Buddhist practices and institutions, how they relate to post-colonial criticisms, concerns about equality and making political change. It's, it's quite a lot. So here's a challenging opening question for you. How would you describe your book's main goal in a nutshell? And why did you think it was an important book to write? Well, I'll start with the second one. Um, so the way that this book came about was um, I'm at a teaching institution. I think a lot of people at teaching institutions really struggle to uh, make their research and their teaching mesh. And in this case, it sort of came up serendipitously where I had I taught um, you know, normal things like introduction to philosophy, ethics and morality. But then I was also tasked with teaching um, uh, Eastern philosophy and feminist philosophy and critical race theory. I'm um, the only person of color and the only woman in my, my philosophy department. So anything that is other, I usually have to do. But I also wanted to um, introduce my students, my, 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 my entry-level, introduction-level students to these ideas as well. And I noticed, particularly in the intro levels, that whenever I taught Buddhism before feminism, my students were much more keen to be sympathetic to feminism but if I switched it, which I think, you know, again, instructors, professors are apt to do just to keep things fresh. If I taught feminism before Buddhism, even if I drew out sort of the, the similarities between Buddhism and fem- feminism in the latter section of Buddhism, students never warmed to feminism. So I thought it was really interesting. And so it made me think that if I could um, find some literature on Buddhist feminism to sort of frame it for my students, they would be able to be more sympathetic to feminism and see the um, the interrelated theories and concepts, but I didn't really find anything satisfactory. So that's was sort of the the generation of this book. And then when I taught my upper level classes, I also teach them a feminist philosophy course and, as I said, an Eastern philosophy course. I wanted to have a section each that dealt with Buddhist feminism, and I didn't really find any chapter. In any book, or and I also looked for an anthology where you know a lot of feminist um, philosophy books will have 
just um, different chapters on like black feminism, radical feminism, sexual difference feminism, post-structural feminism, lots of these things, but never did they include a Buddhist feminist chapter. So that also made me want to write a book about Buddhist feminism. So, so you're motivated by trying to bring these two things together to, to help your students. Um, so there's a pedagogical aspect to it. What else is the book trying to do? Sort of elevator speech version. What, what would you say the thesis of your book is? Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think I, again, I struggle just like my students. You write the book and you think it's about something. And then at the end, you think, oh, well, really, this is what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think in the beginning, I just noticed that, I don't know. I mean, I was at a, a certain stage in my career where I, I need to apply for a full professor, you know, just something very practical. And I needed a book project. And I, I wanted to think about what are the different things. And I just started noticing uh, small things, not, you know, just like here and there. If I want to work on Buddhist feminism, what, why, why is there so little material? And then when I looked a little bit further, I sort of drew out this, I started to notice this pattern where there were a lot of Western feminists who went to Buddhism particularly because they just felt angry. They were angry. And I thought, okay, well, why is, why is this sort of the common um, strand and why, why does it work for them or how does, how does it not work for them? And I think as feminist philosophers, it's maybe more... Um, Natural is not quite the right word I want to use. It's a little bit, um, I think feminists are more apt to look beyond Western traditions and because they're really resisting the sort of like Western patriarchal narrative, right? But when they do that, I notice that even by going to a different culture, they still gravitate towards male thinkers and male leaders of the of Buddhist structures. So even while they're trying to break from sort of this patriarchal structure, especially because they think Buddhism can give a more positive, more nuanced reading to anger, which is so, which is so much associated with um, the hysterical woman or with negative emotion in Western philosophy. They don't look to female leaders of Buddhist um, traditions, and so some might argue, and they certainly do, that um, there are no Buddhist feminine uh, female leaders. And to that, I, I sort of challenge them. So in the end, I think it's a reclamation project of how these early Buddhist nuns are these leaders that people overlook because of their, um, one, um, inability to see fem- female leaders in the Buddhist traditions because they are often hidden. And second, because they're really, sometimes I think feminists are afraid to deal with the question of anger. And if you put those, if you sort of displace the anxiety around those two things, then you can get to a point where there are feminist Buddhist leaders. Okay, great. So we'll talk about the feminist uh, Buddhist leaders in the form of the, the Buddhist nuns uh, once we get to the, the sort of final chapter of your book, like you mentioned, with the Tarigata and some of these other writings. Uh, let's back up just a little bit and talk about you. You mentioned your, your pedagogical motivations, um, the bridging of Buddhism and feminism. Uh, but big picture, how did you come to be interested in Buddhism and feminism more broadly? Um, it, that's also a strange. I think you know I've always been interested in in Buddhism in the sense that my family was is is from the Theravada tradition, so we were culturally Buddhist. But I didn't have any way of um, of asking questions and getting answers that were satisfactory. One, uh, I grew up in a Cambodian household, and just the way that culture and tradition is children don't really ask pressing questions to to parents, even if they really want to know something about their culture. It's just not the way that it works. So I, I grew up in this tradition, but it was mostly cultural for me. So there, you know, there were shrines in my house. 
fun. And then there were um, celebrations that we went to, but I didn't really know what it meant. And when I went to, when I entered into philosophy, I had more access to that, but then it was filtered through sort of the white European lens and I could never really make them match. And then I also had this feminist part and I didn't really know what to, what to make of it and, and how, to, how to join them because I, it was both. I mean, on the one hand at home, my parents couldn't really understand why I was asking about, about sort of posing these questions that were feminist. But then when I was in sort of the more academic sphere, it just made it the, the way that I read the material or the material that was presented to me in graduate school never made it um, something that was prominent, that was a part of the, prominent part of the class. So I just struggled with it. And this project is, is coming out of that as well. Right. So it, it sounds like uh, some of the themes in the book that you're talking, you're engaging with, with these sort of fragmented identities, uh, sort of border identities and East meets West kind of things are, are, are personal as well as uh, professional for you. Yes, absolutely. That's great. Uh, so let's dig into the book. Let's start with how you're setting the stage. So you know, when we talk about Western, we're obviously kind of putting this in, in scare quotes here. We're talking about broadly Western approaches. And, and you start with the idea of um, Greco-Roman philosophy to make it more specific, in particular, Stoicism and its relationship to anger. So why start there in a book on Buddhist feminism and Theravadan feminism? Uh, why, why should we look at the Stoics? Uh, why should we look at the Stoics on anger to help us get a grip on Buddhist feminism? Right. Um, yeah. So I say in the beginning that, you know, there are different approaches, there are different ways to write this book. And for me, it is, you know, as you said, a, a very personal journey. So in a way, even though I was brought up in this Theravadan tradition, my real engagement, maybe that sounds terrible, is through mostly my academic um, training. So when I approach sort of the, the, the question of anger, it's something that I'm most familiar with in terms of being a, a graduate student. Well, I was a graduate student in philosophy. Where you would look would be sort of the Stoic tradition or the Greco-Roman tradition. Um, it was not something that I could really pose to my to my family. Although, and this is just an aside, they have every they have every reason to be angry because, again, so I said I was Cambodian. Um, we also led to um, America as refugees because of the Khmer Rouge. So it, it wasn't as if there, there was not anger in the household and, you know, for, for good reason, but I could never really unpack that. And there was no way to address it through Buddhism um, in my household. But when I went to graduate school, you do sort of get these hints and it's still, it, it's much less um, talked about, right? Sort of the, the concept of anger, the emo emotions in general, but the emotion of anger in particular is something that can be helpful or can be useful. But you do get it in, in, a, in a very, um, you get a more sustained analysis of anger, I think, in the Stoic tradition. So that's where I began. Mm -hmm. And so maybe can you pull out for, for the listeners here what it is that the Stoics say about anger that is sort of fruitfully yeah, juxtaposed <laughs> with uh, Buddhism? I, I mean, people might know that Stoicism and Buddhism are often compared together. Um, what's going on in the Stoic side of things, first of all, that, that might make it useful for thinking about it in tandem with Buddhism? Well, there are a couple of things. Um, so one, the Stoic tradition does allow for a meditation on anger. So I thought that was really helpful. What does it mean to sort of to meditate on anger? And so there's this part where each day you can think about 
um, what it is that angered you or what it is that um, made these feelings arise. So there was this concept of reflecting and um, finding a way to address anger. But in each case, it was always in, in stoicism, anger is still a negative quality. Right. So that was sort of an interesting juxtaposition for me, whereas in the Buddhist tradition, you would think it would be the same. And I would say there's still a part of literature that does say anger is a negative emotion. that You should not have it at all. It's a poison. But there are these sort of hints and these notes where anger can be more nuanced that you. Um, there's also this this idea in Buddhism where if you have an aversion, that's also a problem. And if you can't sort of address something, metabolize it, that's also an issue. So um, I thought that to be something that I could pull out and say, okay, on one hand, this is very similar because they allow for meditation on this emotion. But in the Buddhist side, they allow for anger to be, to not necessarily be thought of as, as evil or necessarily bad, because that, again, that's, a, that's too dualistic in the way that it's, it's thought of. But in Stoicism, they will just say, no, this is something that you need to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the context of the, the feminist aspect of the equation here, you also talk about uh, feminism and anger and framing it in terms of the sort of Western tradition broadly that draws inspiration from Stoicism. So what is important about feminist relationships with uh, this kind of analysis to anger for setting the stage? So I think that feminists, um, and I understand it historically, have not wanted to talk about anger because it's so much the case that women have been um, especially women of color, black women, um, have been caricatured as angry, angry women. So I can see why there is a desire not to sort of give into that stereotype. There's a desire not to, um, to say, to, to buy into this narrative that somehow women are so emotional and the worst emotion to have, of course, is anger, because that's what um, male philosophers have said about women and women of color for a long time. But I think by doing that, there's also a problem, which is to say that, well, are we not doing the same thing? Are we not erasing this emotion, which we have to admit that we all have? Um, so I think that my approach here is to say, well, if Western feminists, broadly speaking, are going to um, attack the or address or try to be a bit more um, empathetic, to discussing the concept of anger, where are they going to go? There's really no place within Western philosophy, even though the Stoic tradition gives you just a hint of it. But if they want to dominate it, they want to make sure they want to eradicate anger. There's still no place for for women to be angry and allow, having the space for women to be angry and having it be, I don't know, at least a, a site of um, a site of political contest. Um, there's no place for them. So that's why Buddhism is is um, a space that they can go to and sort of develop in their, the concepts of anger. Great. So and we'll unpack this more as we go through through the the rest of the book and the other chapters. But just again to kind of kind of set the stage here. So we have starting with the sort of Western indebted to Stoicism, uh, thinking about anger as irrational, as something to be suppressed, but yet having meditative techniques and a Buddhist approach, which underscores meditation, but has maybe a, a little different relationship to anger. Uh, and then we have this this feminist intervention here. To help our listeners understand what you're talking about with the Buddhist aspect of setting the stage, 
who are the Buddhists you're focusing on this book? So you've, you've mentioned Theravadin already, and this may be a term that's new to some of our, our, our listeners. So who are the Theravadins? Where do they fit in? Uh, are you talking about Cambodian uh, Theravadins? Uh, is it more broad geographical span? Like, who, who are you talking about in this book when you say Buddhists? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So in the beginning, I try to begin with um, Buddhist leaders and Buddhist um, academics who Western audiences would be more familiar with. And um, so certainly I teach Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who is uh, very influential for Bell Hooks. Um, there's a little bit on the, the Dalai Lama, um, the current Dalai Lama. Those are people I think, if even if you don't know anything about Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy, I think people in America would know uh, who the Dalai Lama is. And Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, is um, he's a public figure um, in the sense that you know he was. Um, there's an association with Martin Luther King Jr. And again, if you were an academic, maybe you know that he was influenced in bell hooks, but uh, his writing is also quite accessible. I teach him um, a lot in my undergraduate classes, and, I, and it's somebody who is quite respected in the academic community. But having said that, both of those are actually in the Mahayana tradition, right? So uh, many people, it depends how you split up, because Buddhism is not Buddhism, it's not all the same thing. So um, Thich Nhat Hanh is from the Zen tradition, even though he was uh, he's, he's he was uh, raised in Vietnam um, and had lived in France and you know tra- traveled um, all over the globe really. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to do was really to talk about the Theravada culture and the Theravada um, Buddhist philosophy. Um, one thing I noticed when I was researching this book and just thinking about the questions that I had that I couldn't really get any answers from my parents about was that I also had a really hard time getting philosophical answers from academic sources about Theravada and philosophy, um, in particular because it's not as if the people don't study Theravada and uh, um, Buddhism. So when I say Theravada in here, I really mean uh, the Buddhism of Southeast Asia. So that would include Cambodia, but it would also include um, Thailand, Laos, Sri Lanka, um, those, those spaces. Um, but I think that most times when people talk about Theravada Buddhism, it comes from either the religious studies angle or an anthropological um, um, analysis. And I think there's a real space for philosophy to to do some work, but it, most people just don't do it. So um, I think you said earlier that, um, well, I think um, in America, and you said earlier in the email, actually, so that... Um, a lot of uh, people who might be listening to this podcast come from the analytic tradition. So already in um, Anglo-America, the, the the philosophy that is most dominant is analytic philosophy. And I think, you can correct me, um, I feel like in analytic philosophy, there isn't as much room necessarily to talk about, at least I haven't seen it, or it doesn't manifest um, itself in this way, uh, to talk about uh, different um, practices. I don't think that's really the way. It's more about sort of conceptual, I don't know, like Nagarjuna and his logical lattices or something, which I also talk about in my book, but it's more something like that. Um, and so there's there's less attention in the analytic tradition, even if they do talk about Buddhism, to talk about feminist traditions or practices or cultures, anything like that. That's my that's my feeling or, or, or my, my takeaway from doing the research. And then even in the continental tradition, which, which is the tradition in which I was um, groomed as an academic, there isn't very much um, talk about Theravada and uh, Buddhism because, I don't know, Mahayana and Zen, Vatrayana, all that stuff is just sexier. 
I don't know why, <laughs> but that's just the way that um, I get that sense. Like I go to conferences, even when it is a comparative conference, there are very, very few papers on Theravada Buddhism at all. So I also found that to be a whole. Um, so as I'm saying this, I guess I, one answer I could give you is that I don't know what I mean necessarily either by talk about, talking about Theravada Buddhism in terms of academic literature, because in philosophy, it just seems to be such a big gap that I feel like I'm sort of having to sort of build that as I go along just for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so often the distinction that the academics make when they're working on Theravada and Mahayana is they'll point people to a conceptual distinction, such as the role of the bodhisattva, right? The, the, the idea that a person will attain enlightenment and then instead of going on to nirvana, they will, they'll hang around and help other people uh, attain enlightenment. Whereas in Theravada, the aim is for the arhat to themselves attain enlightenment. And that's the main goal. So that's often the way things are kind of characterized. But it sounds to me like you're, you're not concerned just about those kinds of conceptual distinctions, but you want to bring in the actual practices and, and make connections between that and the, uh, the philosophical positions as well. Is that fair? Right. And also just, I, I like the way that you, you um, frame that. So not only is the Theravadan tradition, um, I think for some people, they would say this is like a really irrational tradition, right? Because here you can only attain enlightenment if you become Erhat. So, and again, for most um, traditions, for most cultures, for most countries in the sort of South, um, Southeast Asia region, that means that you have to become a monk, right? And that and that's a very particular um, thing, which is to say already then that there are no nuns, right? So there are many people who would look at my project and say, well, why would you focus on Theravada Buddhism at all? The reason why feminists will go to uh, the Mahayana traditions is because it isn't about necessarily becoming a monk. You can become a bodhisattva, and there's not necessarily a gender attached to that, although when you look at the history, I think there is. <laughs> clearly is but, but conceptually and um, in an abstract way, there does not have to be. It does not have to be gendered, right? So there is Kuan Yin, um, who who is um, um, portrayed as a, as, as a woman. Um, but in the Theravada tradition, because it is so much, the enlightenment is so much attached to becoming a monk, and again, a monk, not a nun, there is no room for, for a feminist discussion there. And I really wanted to sort of push back against that. So I'm doing it both ways, I guess. I would say that, yes, I do want to engage the culture um, and, um, and in fact, in some of the articles I've written, I really talk about practices almost, you know, to exclusion, uh, or much more so than I do about sort of the philosophy and the concepts about it, or I use the, or I use the practices to push uh, a different type of conceptual understanding of Theravada mm-hmm. culture. Great. Well, then let's, again, let's dig in a little bit more to what your argument is in the book. Uh, again, thinking, thinking about the listeners of the podcast, uh, if they know anything about Buddhism, they probably know that Buddhists, generally speaking, are committed to something called no self or contentious what that is, depending on the multiplicity of, of Buddhists, as we've talked about. Um, but for for your book, what you're arguing is that this idea, as I take it, is consistent with anti-essentialist feminism. So we've got two sides of the equation here. We have no self in the Buddhists you're looking at, and then we have anti-essentialism in feminism. So let's let's start with the no self in, in Buddhism. What's the idea here um, that that you're unpacking uh, to help us understand how it applies um, can be can be brought into contact with fe- feminism? Sure. 
So um, I guess the other way to think about my book is um, the different ways in which I go through the different chapters. I sort of pit different um, concepts in Western feminism um, with various Western feminist um, philosophies and Buddhist philosophy. And one thing that I hear a lot um, about people who push back against any type of notion of Buddhist feminism is that, well, how can there be Buddhist feminism at all if Buddhists believe in the no self, right? So if there is no self, what does that mean? So it means that all of these properties which we um, attribute to the self in Western philosophy, a la Descartes, for instance, right, um, is really illusory and it's, 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 it's transient. So you can't really say that there is this thing or this particular um, quality that belongs to me because in any moment you're shifting. So if you're saying, well, uh, the body is a, is, a, is a part of the self, right? And so, and that's something even more than maybe Descartes would say. Like, you know, it's, it's unclear whether you, even, you would even get that from, from Descartes. But clearly in feminist philosophy, there is, in Western feminist philosophy, there is a way of, of, uh, of reclaiming the body and saying, yes, this is part of my identity. This is part of, uh, there's an, yeah, there's a, there's a level of embodiment that makes me and my experiences valuable and real. This is what um, is often left out of canonical Western philosophy. So there's that. But on the other hand, if you will come from that tradition where you want to give more um, weight to the body, how can you reconcile that with this Buddhist concept of no self, which says, yes, the body or the material aspects of ourselves are part of ourselves, but it's not, um, it's not, it's not static. It's not stable. How, how do we deal with that? And I think even in talking about that, I think many Western feminists would say, would sort of agree that, you know, there is a material aspect to ourselves, but you can't say that there's something quite essential about the material because, you know, our bodies do change, right? So for people, for instance, who um, want to make a claim that, um, so the TERFs, right, the, the trans exclusionary radical feminists who say that, well, there's, there, there, there are women and women are, 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 are people who menstruate. Well, I think everybody will have to know. And if you don't, then there's some other problems going on that not that women don't menstruate our whole lives. Right? So it's, it's still a very, even though something is material, it's a transient quality to it. Um, so even though the no self is often picked out as something that would not allow for a feminist philosophy foundation, I don't think it's actually, um, um, inc- it doesn't contradict anti-essentialist feminist philosophies. So I was at a conference once and one of my um, former professors, former professors put it very nicely. He said, yeah, you know, people um, use the no self as a way to say there, that there can't be a Buddhist feminism, but nobody's pushing back against Judith Butler for having an anti-essentialist viewpoint, even though it sort of amounts to something, it's, it's something similar, something comparable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the, the idea in the, um, and I guess going back here to maybe sort of the Theravadan traditions, thinking about Melinda's uh, questions, a famous famous uh, Buddhist um, text that, that talks about a chariot, right? Where you say, well, what is, what is this thing that we call a chariot? Is it the wheel? Is it, in, you know, and, and is it the chair? Is it a combination of these? Is it something else? And the are the Buddhist uh, protagonist says, well, look, it's, it's not any of these things. We just kind of, we conventionally call this thing a, a chariot. So if I'm understanding you right, the, uh, the idea here is for, for these Buddhists, this thing that we're calling a self or that we're calling woman or man or something, likewise sh- should be subject to this kind of 
analytical uh, destruction that there, there's there's no essence to it. Um, it's there's there's things that we're we're looking at that is sort of the basis for why we call people women and men ourselves, uh, and that and that's the kind of idea in, in Buddhism that you're thinking is is connected here. Is that is that fair? Yes, that's right. So I mean, so I think there might be people who you know just maybe put it very plainly to say, well, how can there be a Buddhist feminism? If there's no self and there's no property, which which is essential, how can they even recognize women as such? And then I think my response is that I think that's a fair question, but there are also many feminist traditions that also don't really recognize women as such, right? That are that are maybe willing to give up the concept of woman for something that is more pliable. And in fact, they think that woman is problematic and has a has been caught in sort of patriarchal narratives. So Monique Wittig, for instance, would rather give up on that concept of women and she'd rather have the concept of lesbian. Uh, Liddell McWhorter talks about how, well, sh- if, if that means that we will have um, a bit more uh, room to care for the self as self rather than self as woman, she's going to give that up as well. Mm-hmm. So so the idea kind of extending with the, the chariot metaphor is that uh, well, it, it's not like because we're Buddhists, we can't talk about chariots and that we can't adapt our concepts of chariots as we develop things like cars and, and so on. So likewise, for, for feminists, there's no problem to be a Buddhist because we can we can revise our conception of of woman uh, and we can still call people women and we can still demarcate some some area for discussion. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So then let's let's think a little bit more about the the feminist side of the equation here in this in chapter three. You look at uh, Judith Butler um, among she's one of the the many feminists you're looking at in this chapter, and you talk about this idea of abject bodies and abjection, and and you connect this to no self. Can you explain that a little bit uh, for us? So what are, what are abject bodies? Um, what's abjection, and how does this uh, fruitfully juxtaposed with the Buddhist conceptions we're talking about here? Yeah. Um, so it, it is a it's um it's a broad concept. So um the way that I discuss it in the book, um, especially in relationship to sort of Buddhist story. So again, what I'm doing is I'm not talking about necessarily um, philosophical concepts proper, or and a lot of this I'm really picking again from religious studies or from anthropological work. Is what does it mean to have an object, an abject body? Um, so I start with with Judith Butler because the people who um, are working with the Buddhist stories also use this concept, which is there is this body that doesn't quite fit within the um, normative um, values of society, right? So, um, if so, for a woman, for instance, um, I, I, I tell this or I, I retell the story of Beautiful Woman um, as, as an example. Beautiful Woman is um, this woman who decides to cut off her breast to feed. A starving mother who is thinking about um, eating her son instead of uh, um, because she's because she's so hungry. So she's willing to give up these her breasts, which are considered to be, you know, at least in Western culture, to be the epitome of what is womanliness and what is beautiful. Um, so she, in, in instead of trying to fit within the norms of society, is willing to go outside. Uh, to, to make her body something different, something that actually is maybe revolting. So not only does she give up her breasts, obviously she's, she's bleeding from, from these wounds. She becomes this body that is um, thought of as disgusting. So not just um, outside of the norm, but disgusting. And somehow reinforces um, the notion um, of what 
the normal and the beautiful is. So the abject is sort of both, right? That which goes beyond and um, is, is contrary to what is no, what is normal and what is beautiful, but then also reinforces those norms. Hmm. And so how would that uh, connect back to the analysis of no self in, in Buddhism? So um, I think the story um, of Beautiful Woman is that even though there, there is this concept that we don't, um, we don't have a self, that we don't have any particular part of ourselves that is, um, is essential to us. What we see is that because of that, it doesn't mean that we, we can't be compassionate, right? That this, this, the self that we are precisely because we are not attached because precisely because beautiful woman is not attached to this physical part of herself, which is her breast, she is able to be compassionate. Because she's able to break from the norms that society has set, that is what allows her to give up or not to care about having breasts so she can um, give to another. Mm. So in some ways, the um, the idea that uh, concern or compassion for another requires there to be a, a self that we're aiming at and a self that we're having compassion from that that's essential. In fact, that you know, you're sort of flipping things that that it's the very lack of those 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 metaphysical uh, realities that that enables compassion. Is that something you do? Yes, I think in that story that that is what's going on, right? That somehow because she is not attached to it, she doesn't think of it as something that she must have, uh, but rather just mm. a body that is fleeting, that she's able to yeah. be compassionate. Yeah, and so okay, so that's the connection there with the. Uh, as you say, the sort of transient or the fleeting uh, conception of the of maybe what we put in scare quotes as the self for the for the Buddhists, um, not the self in the in the Cartesian kind of sense. Okay, so so that's going on in chapter three, um, and so you're in this chapter, you're sort of interweaving for in particular the idea of no self and um, and, and feminist conceptions of anti essentialism in chapter four you take up some some criticisms. Uh, you mentioned a few already. Um, one is that, wait a second, if, if we don't have a self, how, how are we going to be able to uh, be feminist here? We, we need to have some sort of essentialism. And, and you've already addressed that a bit, that philosophical objection. Um, but there's another one that maybe comes more from the, uh, the anthropological or religious studies literature, and that's the historical record. So one thing people might say is, well, why should we look at Buddhists uh, for a, a source of feminist philosophy? Um, they're pretty patriarchal. Uh, you mentioned the Theravans. They've just got monks. They don't have nuns. Uh, if you read any of the monastic literature, it seems uh, pretty patriarchal, pretty um, anti-sex, uh, discussed with, with women's bodies. There's a whole bunch of things going on that you might just say, why, why in the world would we look at Buddhism here? So what are some of these aspects of Buddhism that, that pose a challenge, first of all, and then how do you uh, address this challenge? Right. So, right. So I juxtapose these two chapters because on the one hand, I would say, well, there are people who push back against Buddhist feminism, precisely you know, in, in, the first in the prior chapter, which is, well, there's no self. How can there be any recognition of women or sort of women suffering? Um, there's no difference between women suffering or men suffering, for instance, if gender is just like anything else, which is an illusory category, right, that you can't hold on to. Um, but on the other hand, 
there are people who will go the other direction, which is say, oh, no, I think Buddhists rec- recognize women, but they recognize it in such a patriarchal manner that um, I would also um, not be sympathetic to Buddhist feminism because the way they treat women and because they pigeonhole women in, in such ways, it's um, it's degrading. It's, um, it's, it's not helpful. It's oppressive, right? So one thing I guess I, I would say is that uh, I'm just trying to draw attention to how these, both these narratives, even though they're um, in contrast to each other, right? In some ways, um, the way you put it, right, anti-essentialist, and then the way the, the fourth chapter of the book is called Buddhist Essentialist, Buddhism's Essential Women, right? So anti-essentialist and essentialist views of, of feminism are both used to uh, negate any type of Buddhist feminism. So I wanted to draw attention to that, that why is it there's no space for, for Buddhist feminism? All um, It seems like all of the different feminist critiques or attacks are, are attacking Buddhist feminism, so it can't um, um, emerge. So I thought that was interesting. Whereas, you know, the, you could say in Western feminist philosophy that, yeah, there's sort of the anti-essentialist camp, and then there's the anti-anti-essentialist camp, whichever way you want to put it, or, this, or the strategic essentialist camp. And I think, by and large, people still recognize them as feminists, right? That even though that they they are um, using different conceptual tools and in some ways um, critiquing each other, they're allowed to be feminists. But both of these tools together are used to, um, to, to negate Buddhist feminism. So that's one thing that I wanted to point out. So which way, how do people want to do this when they want to talk about Buddhist feminism? Why is there so little space for this to, to arise? But okay, so but yes, for the essentialist camp, if I am going to be looking at the historical um, <laughs> ways which Buddhism arose. And again, I think that's something that is very typical of, um, of religious studies, anthropology, but also continental philosophy, that, you know, that there is um, um, this outline of, okay, why are women important? And why is the importance of women in, say, um, in the Theravon culture, in the way religious ceremonies and practices are um, are maintained, it's, it's less obvious. So when we think about... Um, Theravada Buddhist um, cultures, I think one of the images that might come to mind, and certainly there are always lots of pictures of it, is the monk going around, you know, gathering alms, right? And so the focus is always on how the monk is somehow gathering the alms. But what you don't hear as much is that the people who prepare the alms are often women. And the people, when, when there are festivals that are important for the community, yes, the monks have sort of this ritual place, but the women do much of the work. And again, you might say, well, yeah, but they're doing all the work that is somehow um, lesser, right? The one they're, they're cleaning up, they're cooking, they're doing these very sort of traditional feminist roles. Um, so what I wanted to do is is address that to say, yes, that, that that is, I think it is a valid critique, but try to draw out some other ways in which they can also be very powerful, right? That um, what does it mean for women to to take on these positions? And if it weren't, if, if we sort of highlighted how important women were, were, are to these practices, perhaps we could shift the discussion to how Buddhism really would not survive without the interventions and the support of women. Mm-hmm. And so do you see a a valuing, a devaluing, a, a neutral attitude on the part of the the Buddhists that you're engaging with, with regard to these roles that women are playing. How how do you think about that? Well, in particular, I think in that chapter I talk about um, the role of the mother. So um, 
I think the the story of um, Gautama um, Siddhartha getting being born and his two mothers, which I think is still not as clear um, to people, right? So there's um, his birth mother Maya, but then there's also his aunt stepmother who also becomes one of the first Buddhist nuns, and um, how this why, why don't we talk about that? And if we sort of delved into that story a bit more, what would that mean for um, for understanding the role of mother? And again, this is something that's quite contested. It's the same way in, in I think, in feminist philosophy, there are some people who want to talk about the role of mother, but there are some who maybe shy away from it because um, they're afraid that this is going to reduce women to only being valuable in the role of the mother. And I think um, his stepmother in particular is an interesting case because um, depending on, on the narrative, right? So there are some people say, well, you know, she, she followed him and she begged him to become, um, to become a nun and to be, to be recognized as, as a nun or just even be part of his of a sangha, to be part of the Buddhist community. And he rejected her. And it was only until his male cousin um, interceded on her behalf on the third time did did the Buddha finally acknowledge or give some sort of um, benefits to his uh, to his aunt and stepmother? And I think there are there's a Buddhist retelling, which is no, that's just a patriarchal version of it. Another version is that it was basically the first women's march where she chased him down in a dogged manner and made him recognize who she was and that she was not going to give up. And I think that type of retelling is actually quite important. And um, here, it also, I think um, it's, it plays with the concept of mother. So she is his mother, but she's not his biological mother. So uh, there's a lot of power in, in thinking about who are these women who do take care of us. And if we only think of, women, of, of mothers as biological um, women or, or women who give birth biologically to sons and daughters or uh, their children, that, that I think is a patriarchal narrative. But this one, I think, allows for greater play. Mm-hmm. So it kind of goes back to that anti-essentialism that like with the chariot, we can, we can call things a chariot even if there's no chariot essence there. We can, we can use the, the word mother and the concept, of, the concept of mother to people who aren't biological uh, birth mothers, you might say. Exactly. And um, this allows for, for us to think about the role of, of caring, the, the, the role that women have in caring for also just Buddhism, the, the tradition and the philosophy, which is what I'm going to try to um, draw out later, right? So not just the, mm-hmm. the not just the cultural practices, but the philosophical concepts too, which they are not getting credit for. Right. Yeah. Let's. Um, there's one other thing in this chapter relating to to mothers that I thought was interesting, and this is brings us back to the, con- the topic of anger, which I think we we we're going to see come back in the next few chapters too. So you focus on Tiknat Han um, and his argument that one way to transform anger, not not suppress it or push it down, but transform it is by cultivating a kind of loving kindness like a mother. Um, and it, so this is one of the ways that Buddhism seems to be different from Stoicism. You're, we're not suppressing anger, we're cultivating uh, other attitudes. But you find something interesting in his use of this mother figure uh, from, a, from a feminist perspective. Can you say a little bit about that case? Right. So um, he does use a very gendered metaphor for anger about, you know, we should think about our anger as a mother would respond to a crying child. So if a mother 
hears her child cry, she's not angry in, re- in response, but instead she seeks to nurture and to care for and to recognize the um, whatever suffering that the child has or whatever needs the child has. So that I think is very powerful that he would pick that metaphor. On the other hand, I also discuss uh, sort of a common critique, which is that on the one hand, it's quite gendered, the mothering mothering the child, but the way in which Buddhist um, texts, and, and especially sort of in, in the Pali Canon, talk about um, mothers in the Buddhist, in the, in the Theravada tradition, anybody can be a mother. So in a sense, um, again, going back to the story of um, Siddhartha and um, his stepmother, um, he, in a sense, becomes the mother of his stepmother because he gives her this type of enlightenment and um, nurtures her through the, the Buddhist path in a way that she could not give him. So that's sort of the other sort of counter narrative in the mothering technique. And one, one thing that I notice in um, Thich Nhat Hanh's work is that when he talks about caring and when he talks about um, how you can care for your anger or, for, or you can be a caretaker, most of the people he uses are men. So even though he uses the metaphor of mothering a child, he has a story about, I don't remember his name, but um, what's important is that he's a, he's a father and he's really trying to deal with how he can um, have time for himself, um, but also take care of his children and be attentive, attentive to his wife. And all of these um, examples still center on men. So the mothering as a concept is not as gendered as you think it would be. Hmm. Or, or because it allows for um, different genders to claim motherhood, it actually becomes much more male in the way that it mm-hmm. is uh, discussed and analyzed. Hmm. So there's a kind of uh, ambivalence here in the, the treatment of, of gender generally and, and mothering specifically. Exactly. So even, even so I guess it's like another switch where even though in this chapter I'm talking about essentialism, what you think would be essential to motherhood become, becomes not really essential, mm-hmm. you know, um, i.e. Yeah. a woman. Interesting. Well, so far we've, we've talked a lot about uh, individual emotions and attitudes like the, the cultivating of compassion with Thich Nhat Hanh and, and so on. But in chapter five, you turn to uh, an implication of a feminist approach to Buddhism, which is that there are, there are social and political implications. So in, in this chapter, you look at what you call the principle of non-discrimination, uh, this philosophical concept, and its application to white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, and other uh, social political structures. And in this chapter, you do this in, in, in one way by looking at the work of Bell Hooks, who, as you've said, is a, a feminist and a Buddhist. So again, here we've got kind of two aspects. Let's start with the principle of non-discrimination. Uh, what is this principle? And then we can turn to how it applies to uh, bell hooks in Black Buddhist communities. So the principle of non-discrimination, I really want to set it up as a way of um, not becoming attached to particular things, concepts, ideas, right? So I think that's something that people might um, pick up through pop culture about Buddhism, right? That uh, if you're too attached to your material things, if you're too attached to um, I don't know, your favorite food or a loved one or a particular feeling, that is something that is really negative. That's something that, that's bad and you need to somehow hammer that out or, or it's something that's um, 
stopping you from gaining this path of enlightenment. So this attachment or this desire, I guess, is another way to put it. And so I think people um, know or have heard that Buddhists would want you to get rid of your desire, right? That you know, if you if you get rid of your thirst and your craving, then you'll get rid of suffering, right? That's part of the um, four noble truths. Um, but the other part of that, or, or I think something that is less discussed, is that you also should not have, or you should work on, um, sort of identifying what types of aversions you have, and somehow to to want to get rid of something, um, to to make something go away, or want to erase something, is also not properly a Buddhist thought. Right, that it somehow doesn't fit within the Buddhist narrative of having sort of equanimity towards life, because that, in a sense, is is it a is sort of the opposite or sort of like the the, the flip side of of desire, right? So, so having a perspective of non discrimination is neither to be attached to it in terms of desire, but neither um, wanting to eradicate it in terms of an aversion. So that sort of I, I want to say something like a middle version of it. Mm-hmm. Good. So, so we're not, we're not averse. We're not clinging. It's something, something, something else. And so how does that then, that, that Buddhist idea of forging this middle, middle way between aversion and desire, how does that connect to Bell Hooks? Uh, she's a, a black feminist and Buddhist, and she's focusing on uh, the United States, that context, and looking at um, well, what you're looking at is non-discrimination and, and anger in particular in this context. How do, how do you make the connection here? Right. So in the, the prior chapters, I really talk about the different ways that are, um, as you said, philosophical and conceptual that are roadblocks to Buddhist feminism, in particular, um, the, the anti-essentialist version of, of the new self or the essentialist um, concepts of the mother, for instance, right? And so those those have both um, philosophical implications, but also um, practical implications, right? Especially the one of the mother. How to, how do we understand what a, who or what a mother is in Buddhist traditions, and how are they able to practice? And I see um, the chapter on Bill Hooks as, as something of an extension of that too. So Buddhism is um, valuable for feminists not just because of the conceptual ideas and the framework that it brings along, but what are the ways in which it really changes the way that women or cultures um, uh, can push back against patriarchy and actually challenge notions of patriarchy. So even though they have this concept of non-discrimination, I, I want to say, is this just a conceptual non-discrimination? Or what would that mean if I sort of flipped it or if, if I wanted to put like a different emphasis on non-discrimination on a practical manner? Right. So just as they have a, they have a conceptual abstract understanding of what the mother is, what does it mean in practice? So they have this concept of non-discrimination, but as Bell Hooks points out, in many Buddhist um, communities, there's a, a large amount of discrimination. And when we move to, say, American um, or, you know, the uh, Buddhist communities in the U.S., for instance, it is, ob- it is you know, there's this, this, this um, data on this, that most um, convert Buddhists are white, privileged people, right? So there's very little space for um, people of color, unless they are, again, heritage um, Buddhist practitioners. And then they're also sort of looked at as, looked down upon as if, it, you know, they're not really philosophically interested in Buddhism. And, and I guess I, I would say that I, I maybe 
um, played into that myself a little bit and just sort of talking about my own history that when I tried to talk to my mom about it, I'm not sure if it was cultural or, or other reasons, um, I have very little information coming um, from her about what Buddhist philosophy is. And I had to go to um, these white intellectuals who that, that raised me in this uh, um, you know, intellectual tradition of, of Western philosophy to try to get at some other answers. So, so there's that. But then particularly, I think, for Black um, practitioners, Bell Hooks is going to bring out how um, you know, why is it that people don't really know that Bell Hooks is a Buddhist um, practitioner? Because she has offered to give um, interviews and has offered to um, to lead um, certain um, conferences or, or or talks, but they don't really want her. And so that's that's part of the question, right? So how do, how do they um, fit into the community, a community that supposedly has transcended? Um, national borders, right? Thich Han um, was a Vietnamese monk, but then he was um, exiled and went to America and Paris and other places like that. But yet on this front, they are still not able, Buddhist communities by and large are not able to deal with the concepts of, of race, let alone, you know, also gender, which I think people largely know or kind of know. But when it comes to race, that's not really discussed at all. So what is this idea of non-discrimination and could can Buddhists put it into play, especially on the, in in relationship to to race? And for someone like Bell Hooks, and um, who is not afraid to say that she's angry, I thought that was particularly interesting. Right, that obviously, if you are someone who is um, quite skilled at critical thought and um, take Buddhist philosophy seriously, but you're still not really allowed into the inner sanctum, or or even just recognized as being part of the community, that would make somebody not just hurt, but also angry. But how do, how, how do Buddhists then use this feeling of non-discrimination uh, or this concept of non-discrimination in relationship to that? So I think what Bell Hooks does, I think she's quite honest, is to say that she actually has a very hard time um, nurturing the anger. Or uh, when she talks to Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, via a written correspondence, and he says, well, you have to use it. You have to use your anger as a compost. She just says you know, flat out, I don't really know what that means. I don't know what that means. So um, this, this, this concept of non-discrimination is, can we push that beyond a conceptual framework and tell me what that means, practically speaking? So I mm, think that's an mm-hmm. important question. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot in that chapter that we could talk about, but uh, for the sake of time, I want to, I want to get, get us to six and, um, and seven here. So, so let's look at the chapter six, where you look at the engaged Buddhist mo- movement. So there's another chapter that talks about politics. Um, and here, again, you're returning to Thich Nhat Hanh, and you juxtapose it with post-colonial feminists, so not necessarily feminists who are Buddhist. Uh, so for instance, Gloria Unsel, uh, is it Unsel Dua? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let me just read a sentence in that chapter kind of stood out to me. So you say that there's a similarity between post-colonial feminists and and Nhat Hanh's work. And it's a similarity that suggests that complete allegiance to the oppressed is not the key to greater inclusivity. And this this sentence took, kind of stood out to me because, at least at first reading, it seems to run counter to the emphasis and that's predominant in a lot of modern and uh, political contexts, especially in the United States, that focuses on oppressed peoples. Right. Um, so, what is it that you're getting at here in this chapter? What are the kind of personal and political attitudes? That someone like, for instance, Thich Nhat Hanh encourages towards oppressors and the oppressed, uh, and then we can talk about uh, Anzaldúa. Right. 
So I think this goes again. So one approach is to say that, right, because they have no sense of, there's no self, there's this concept of no self, you can't really um, say I am this particular thing. Well, you can't always just say, well, I am always the oppressed either. And there's some people who would push back against that because then you're saying, well, the suffering of the oppressor and the oppressed is the same. And just because you are an oppressor doesn't mean that you don't suffer. And um, don't we always, don't Buddhists want to address the suffering of all sentient beings, right? So you can't necessarily separate out the oppressor and the oppressed, right? And that's, I think, um, a political critique of Buddhism, right? And I think someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, he goes right at it. He's not, in a way, he's not afraid to say it. I mean, he has this poem where he says, you know, call me by my... I'm going to get wrong. Call me by my my true name, um, something like that. Where he says, "I am both the the pirate who raped the girl, but also the girl who got raped." So, in, I think in that um, in that poem, he's really saying, "I'm not only associating with the oppressed with the oppressed. In fact, he is basically saying, oppressors, um, we are also oppressors in our own way. We have to recognize that." And I think Uncle Dua is also um, saying, "Well, look, I." I have a, you know, sort of in the tradition of the mestiza feminism, I am not only indigenous, I am not only um, a woman, but I also, so, so identities, which are often associated with, with the oppressed. But there are parts of me also that are white, that, um, that do have privilege. And for me to ignore that is also problematic. Um, so when we do think about our, our, our sense of self, our subjectivity, if we only identify with the oppressed, are we really recognizing ourselves um, in the fullest manner? Are we really honest with ourselves and how we, how we understand ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so Anzal Dua is focusing on this, the aftermath of colonialism and this sort of border identity, right? So it's, it's not stable that she's got Mexican, Indian and, and white. Um, and so here, if I'm understanding you correctly, this kind of brings us back or connects to the thing we were talking about earlier, which is the no-self uh, idea in uh, Buddhist philosophy. So Anzal Dua, though, is not a Buddhist, right? But no. you're forging this connection for yourself, saying how Buddhist feminists could draw on post-colonial feminists in, in this way to, to do something new. Is that correct? Right. And I, I'm sort of also drawing attention to what I think is interesting is that, so what does it mean to be a post-colonial feminist? You don't have to be um, from... Latin America to be a post-colonial feminist, right? So there are um, people in, um, indigenous peoples in New Zealand or Australia who also identify as post-colonial feminists, right? But then, especially if I'm going to go back to the elder Buddhist nuns as sort of a model of Buddhist feminism, in what way does post-colonial feminism not actually work as an identifier? One, I would say that Buddhist um, women are not lumped in somehow, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but they're not identified as post-colonial feminists in any way, right? If you read any type of chapter on post-colonial feminism, you're not going to see it. And then, um, so it's sort of a misnomer um, in that way, especially again, if I'm going to go back to the elder Buddhist nuns. But on the other hand, a lot of um, the things that I'm going to try to pick out in terms of what Buddhist feminism could do or what uh, feminist philosophy can take from Buddhist uh, practices or um, the way that women practice Buddhism in Southeast Asia, for instance, does can fit within post-colonial feminist philosophy, especially um, if I'm going to go to Maria Lagones, um, how she talks about um, how women can sort of claim anger and how anger makes them um, 
able to be in touch with a different type of identity, like a, a second world order identity. I think there are many ways in which Buddhist women in Southeast Asia can do the same, but yet there's not that connection being made in the literature mm-hmm. that exists. Mm. So even though people might say, well, look, post-colonial just doesn't even make sense. This is pre-colonial. Mm-hmm. How are you using these these uh, these ideas? And, and you're, you're pointing to some uh, sort of deep conceptual connections here that are also practically uh, implementable. Exactly. So, I mean, again, I think that term is, um, you know, so that there's also a decolonial and, um, mm-hmm. but why is it again, I'm also sort of pointing to this gap. Why is it that women who practice Buddhism or women in South, from Southeast Asia in general are just absent from that conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a gap and a mission. Let's let's talk about that gap then. So your final chapter focuses on Buddhist nuns, bhikkhuni, um, and as we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, this is a tradition that's really, um, in many ways, diminished or, or almost absent throughout Asia, in, insofar as there's a focus on on monks. Uh, and so we've talked about how this is a challenge to a feminist reading of Buddhism because it seems to show that Buddhist institutions are are sexist. We've talked about that um, some responses to that a little bit. In your, in your last chapter, you, you you focus on the Tarigata, this this book of verses that's attributed to, to Buddhist nuns. Um, and in particular, you're looking at there's some ambivalence, I guess I sh- might say, towards the embodied experience of women. On the one hand, it seems like there's a negative attitude towards sexuality, that the, nun, the nuns are celibate. They weren't arguing for sexual liberation. Uh, but on the other hand, you see a kind of feminist undercurrent or a potential feminist reading here. So maybe... Can you tell us about that? And then the second piece that I want to make sure to come back to is how this relates to the theme of anger that we've been talking about throughout the book. So so what's feminist going on here is the first question, I guess. Great. Yeah, no, th- those are two great questions. I do think they're interrelated. So I think um, one of the reasons why um, many scholars don't look to the Tara, um, the Terragata is because they feel like, well, wow, when you read this, it's so anti-sex, right? That, you know, I, I don't love, I, I don't like sex and oh, the snake is dirty, all of these things, like all this imagery that just seems to um, scream, um, I don't know, sort of patriarchal, patriarchal purity in a way, right? So there's that. And I, I do address that and I say, well, I, I understand that. Well, in context, you have to note though, that the way in which that um, Buddhist nuns reject sex and sexuality is still actually much more nuanced and much tamer than the way that monks reject sex and sexuality. So if you put those two, if you juxtapose those two, you see um, still a more nuanced version with with the with the Buddhist nuns. On the other hand, even though that they're the Buddhist nuns are sort of backing away from sex and sexuality in some ways, very much so denouncing sex and sexuality. I do understand that. I think it's a valid critique. What they're not um, backing away from and what I think Western uh, scholars and Western feminists don't pick up on that I'm trying to draw out is that what they don't back away from is anger. A lot of these women are angry, right? So if you, if feminists, if Western feminists only see how um, other cultures and other women of other cultures respond to sexuality and that's somehow the litmus text, test, they are missing out on other ways to understand um, certain concepts and practices that could actually um, unify more women. And that is really the response to anger. And in particular, what I want to say is, I think it's interesting that someone like Bell Hooks or Irigaray or um, feminist philosophers will say, wow, this is really amazing that the Dalai Lama, Tika Han, will just come out and say, yes, I'm angry. Yes, I'm sometimes angry and um, I don't deny it. 
but they're always looking to these men and in response to anger and in, uh, in acknowledging their anger. But when it comes to women who do the same, it's not even, it doesn't, it doesn't register at all because they're so focused on the question of sex and sexuality. So I want to sort of um, highlight that more and sort of de-emphasize the sex and sexuality of it. And so if you do that, then you get this narrative, which allows there to be a connection between the way that Western feminists want to um, cloud Buddhism for its um, response to anger. And then also the women who in Buddhist traditions and cultures who also have allowed for anger to appear and to um, say, yes, we women have been treated in a particular way and we, just, we, we are angry and there's, there's not a problem with that. Right. But also there's a recognition to sort of put those two in dialogue more directly with each other rather than Western feminist Buddhist men anger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and where do these Buddhist nuns in these texts, where does their anger emerge? What's its uh, target? How is it characterized? So I think there are, are some poems where they will say that, yeah, I'm angry in the way in which I have to share a husband with my own daughter. And because of that, we have decided to follow the path of a um, of nuns. And you see this also in, say, the Christian tradition, which is that, um, yes, there are many things about religion in general um, that is a, that's oppressive to women, but there are also parts of religion that allow women to be free of men. So especially in, in the um, Buddhist uh, nuns and, and their community, there, it is a community of women. So they don't have to be married. They, and sometimes in, in certain cases, they actually leave their families to become Buddhist nuns. So if you, if you are in an abusive relationship and you have a Buddhist um, female community who will take you, then that is a way for you to free yourself from, 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 from male um, abuse. You know, your father, your, your husband, whoever that is. But then there are also passages where um, the women have a different attitude towards anger. So there is one where um, a servant girl is trying to get away from her female master because she's angry with her. But then when she goes down to um, the water, to fetch some water, she sees a man who is um, sort of deluding himself in um, Hindu practices and Hindu um, concepts. Of, um, of the self. And she thinks that's actually much more dangerous. And she's, and I think that poem actually shows how there is a more nuanced version of anger there too. That, okay, yes, so there's, so there's a woman who's, who is angry with her. But she doesn't think that's, she, she thinks it's, it's troublesome, bothersome. It's not something she wants to be around. But what you see is that this other way in which people um, are attached to uh, rituals that are um, illusory or, 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 or Further someone's delusion, that's much more probable. Probable. It's more. It's more of a problem than it is with somebody who um, expresses anger. So there, I think, is another version where um, women can have a more nuanced version of anger in the Buddhist tradition. It's not just the Tikkun Hans of the world, and I'd like for feminists to understand that too and recognize that. Great. Well. Um... Thank you for for taking us through that. Um, now, now we have the Buddhist feminism, so there's a at least one more resource out there for for, for doing what you're what you're trying to argue um, for for folks coming after you. What are you working on now? Now that this book is out, well, in general, I'm I'm really trying to think about um, putting women of different cultures in um, 
conversation with each other. So one of the things I, I discussed at the very end of the book is um, if I had to do it over again, I thought to myself, there was a point when I, when I was writing the conclusion that maybe I wanted to name the book, not Buddhist feminism, but feminist sanghas. So as to, um, but then I told it to a couple of my friends who were, who were quite educated. They said to me, well, what's a song? And I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe I picked the right title. So it's fine. <laughs> but, um, but so one of the things I'm trying to work on is whether or not I can find connections between Theravada Buddhist women and say um, indigenous fem- feminist practices of New Zealand, right? So um are there? I feel like in in both places, um, women play a strong part in upholding the culture, culture and sort of practices, but it's not recognized. And I would like, um, I, I would like to build some type of philosophy where it's I'm not just looking to Western thinkers, but rather having different, you know, I don't know, um, philosophies of the South sort of in, in um, relation to each other, and especially when it comes to Theravada Buddhist women who seem to always be out of the picture. So to draw them into this conversation of philosophies of the South. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing seeing what, you, what you're able to do and come up with in the future. And uh, thank you again for uh, taking time to, to speak with us today at the, the New Books channel. Really appreciate it. It took time. Great. Thank you so much.